Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blasphemy the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they are. Like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Emma. Let's pray. Lord, would our hearts be good soil for your word this morning? And I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, our rock, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. May grab a seat.
I would say she nailed that reading, wouldn't you? Two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, church planning organization that I and we used to be part of posted a video in which one of the U.S. vice presidents, who's also uh, the church planning director, interviewed a church planner from the northeast of, of, of the United States and uh, asked him about a message he had preached at a regional uh, conference recently within this organization. The title of the message was this, Walking with Jesus Among Our Beloved White Supremacists, Family, Friends, and Neighbors. So the interviewer, this church planning director, asked this gentleman why he titled it this. And he said, quote, the reason I titled it that way was not only to honor the white supremacists we get to love, but also to pause to ask the question, where is God at work in the white supremacist community? He went on to say, because I think we can make a lot of assumptions that will really hurt us and it will also help us to come in as listeners and learn with a posture of compassion from these white supremacists. The vice president oohed and awed and went on to say, I love that phrase, walking with Jesus among our beloved white supremacists, family, friends, and neighbors. Now, there's more I could share, but I'll stop there and ask you a question. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? Come on. What do you think of that? You're thinking, why in the world would you even ask me what, you, what I think of that? You would say it's flat out wrong, right? Because white supremacy, any form of partiality, and it comes in all kinds of packages, is sin. It's flat out wrong. That's what you would say. And the loving thing to do would be after doing a little bit of listening, do some talking, right? And call these people embracing this, this sinful ideology to, to repentance and to turn to Jesus who is full of mercy to all who turn to him. Now, I did something here, just so you know. Maybe some of you already know. Actually, that video was not about white supremacy, but it was about the LGBTQIA community. It was entitled Walking with Jesus Among Our Beloved LGBTQIA Plus Community. Something Christians are increasingly refusing to address, right? Biblically, that is. Hence, I switched from one sin to another just to make the clear point. And in that video, there was not a single Mention of the word sin. There was nothing mentioned about the atoning work of Christ and the need that we all have for him and his work on the cross. There was no mention of, of repentance. Just all of us, in the words of the video, just walking towards Jesus together, one learning from the other. Instead of saying, no, I don't care what your sin is that, ha that has you in bondage, whatever it is, if you're not yet at the cross, you're not running towards God. You're running away from God as a rebel. 
And the vice president just glowed about this approach on how to reach people in our beloved LGBTQIA community. Let me give you another example. This week, I learned that a pastor who preached from this very pulpit, and I've preached from his pulpit, has embraced this fallen duality that there is a difference between one's sex and one's gender identity. I had a whole list of examples to bring up, but I think I've made the point. Now, why am I bringing up these illustrations? Why am I doing this? Because I simply want to make the point that the message of Jude is just as relevant, just as needed, just as urgent today as it was when it was originally penned in the 60s AD. What is the message of the book of Jude? Well, let's read verses three and four together, which is actually the next time's text. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, in other words, saying, I just want to write to you about our gospel. I just, that's all I wanted to do. However, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. What is the message of the book of Jude? That we need to contend for the faith. And as we just saw, all he wanted to do was write to them about the gospel, encourage them in in, in the salvation they have through the work of Christ. But because he saw that this gospel message, the faith once delivered to the saints, was being attacked specifically by people doing an inside job, he felt it necessary to warn them, to encourage them to contend for the gospel. Because I would just say this. The gospel is worth contending for, right? Isn't it? If this is the only message that can reconcile sinful humans through holy God for time and eternity, then I would say this gospel is worth contending for. And so five messages spread out over seven weeks. Pastor Charles will be preaching next week, again in our series in in the Gospel of Matthew, and then Pastor Nick at the end of the month. But five messages. And what we're going to look at is this idea of contending for the faith. What you might ask me, though, what is contending for the faith? What is it? Well, We're not going to get into that until message two in two weeks. However, let me point out, he does not say in verse three that you are to be contentious for the faith, right? There's a difference. But he's also not saying we ought to be compromisers of the faith with a fallen view of compassion. Rather, we are to contend for the faith. And all I want to do today from the opening salutation is this, is to give us three motivations for which we ought to contend. Three, three ways he motivates us to do just what this letter calls us all to do indiscriminately if we're in Christ, which is to contend for the faith. Y'all with me? All right, number one, number one. The reason we should contend for the faith is because if you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's your Lord. He's your master. Look how it begins. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ 
and brother of James. Now, who's this Jude? I'm not going to take all the time to go through. There's like five or six Judes or Judases. You know, Judas Iscariot, for instance, they're in the New Testament. I just want you to drop your eyes again on the last phrase of the first part of verse one. He identifies himself not just as a servant of Jesus Christ, but also as a brother of James. You see that? Now, there are a few James, but let me just cut to to the chase. This James is the half-brother of Jesus, okay? So if James is the half-brother of Jesus, and Jude is the brother of James, who does that make Jude a half-brother of? Jesus. The Scripture explicitly says that. They said this of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. Isn't that, and they were saying this derisively, isn't that the carpenter's son? Matthew 13, 55. Isn't his mother Mary? And aren't his brother, brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And there you have it. And aren't these all his sisters? Which was kind of cool. I never really noticed that, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, it's, it's quite evident that these brothers and sisters Jesus had, James and Jude included, grew up then in the household with Jesus around. And using just a little bit of sanctified imagination, I just wonder if they had any resentment build up in them. I don't think for a city second Jesus was ever pretentious about his perfection, but he was perfect, right? Like he never messed up. He never did anything wrong, unlike them, because they were like us. He was sinless, we were sinful. So they knew there's something different about Jesus, to be sure. And they knew that at age 12, Jesus went up in the temple and he taught uh, as one who had great expertise. He befuddled the teachers of law at age 12 in the temple. And again, just a little bit of sanctified imagination. We can imagine perhaps Joseph and Mary, as the kids got old enough to understand the birds and the bees, saying, now you need to know something about brother Jesus. He, uh, he came into the world a little bit differently than the rest of you kids did. Anyway, he, they knew there was something different about their brother Jesus, right? Would you, would you agree with on that? And yet, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, well into his public ministry, none of them believed in him, in him as Lord. They were rejecting that. Then you go to Mark chapter 3 and verse 4, and what you find is, worse yet, that as people began to follow Jesus during his itinerant ministry, they tried to seize him and and get him to cease and desist. And they said, you're out of your mind. They said, he's crazy. So that's what Jesus' brothers and presumably sisters said about Jesus well into his ministry. And yet, if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you find there's this prayer meeting being held. You remember that? The prayer in the upper room? It says, all of these were together in one accord in prayer. It says, all the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, devoting themselves to prayer, and his brothers. So what in the world happened? How did James and Jude and, and the others, I would guess, go from saying, he's crazy, he's out of his mind, to praying for Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit? How do they go from rejecting their brother 
So even in the case of James and Jude writing books of the Bible. Anybody want to answer that? What happened? The resurrection. Last week, the sign of who? The sign of, was anybody here last week? I was a poor communicator last week. The sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale and came forth alive, Jesus Christ the ultimate Jonah came forth from the belly of the earth, rose from the dead. And for that, for them, that was a difference maker. That changed their minds. Now, I think there's a little bit of encouragement here for us in all of this. I want to encourage the person, just a quick aside. But maybe you're down, maybe you're discouraged because you're aiming to really walk the walk in a difficult situation, perhaps, uh, in the midst of your siblings, or in the midst of some friends, or with your spouse, or any, any extended family members, and guess what? They're still lost. They're still lost. You've been trying to walk the Christian walk by the power of the Spirit in front of them, and they're still lost. Well, I just want to remind you what I pointed out. Yes, our witness matters. Yes, how we walk out the faith matters, but I'm pretty sure, a little bit of sarcasm here, Christ had the best Christian witness ever, right? And yet, what did his brothers and sisters do? They rejected him. And that's also a reminder, is it not, that you can be raised in a Christian family, and yet you still need to be converted. There are no second-generation Christians. You have to come to faith for yourself. Yes, we need to walk out the faith, right? Yes, we need to do that. Our testimony matters, does it not? But the power in conversion is not in who we are, but in what he has done. Romans 1.16, that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can open up the eyes of somebody who walked with the best Christian witness forever, I mean for, for a quarter century, and yet did not believe. Now, end of an aside, let me ask this question. Why do they not say, why does he not say, um, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of Jesus. That's a sweet name-dropping opportunity, isn't it? Have you ever put your name in there? So-and-so, the brother of Jesus. Never have to buy myself a meal again, right? I mean, I would take, we would take advantage of that. But why, why do they do that? Why? James doesn't do that in his book. He doesn't say, brother of Jesus. Jude, as we just read, doesn't say that. So why doesn't he do that? What do you think? Well, maybe because it's an act of humility, would you agree? Yes or no? Do you think it might be um, an omission born of a desire to make sure that it's his name that's known, not, not his own? Like, again, humility? And I would say yes to all that, but there's something far deeper at work here. They understood Jude, James, the half-brother of Jesus, that their relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord far superseded their relationship with Jesus as a physical brother. And I have a principle I derive from that that I think some of you might think is blasphemy, but it's biblical. It's this. Your faith trumps your family ties. You know that? Now, that, 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 that smacks us in the face of American Christianity. But your faith trumps your family ties. 
Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that you somehow blow off what the Bible itself, what your faith says about loving your family, about providing for your family, about protecting for your family, about submitting and serving and all that according to the role that God has assigned you in that family. Nor is it to somehow deny the fact that, yes, you will naturally have special feelings of love and affection for your own blood family. That's, that's all natural, and the Bible doesn't say ignore that. But the love of the family, we're talking about a human biological family, a human adopted family, all of that, is to point to something bigger and better than that love. It's to point to the love of God, and if you've run to the cross, you've experienced that love, right? That agape love. That then love is to be expressed among your brothers and sisters in Christ, among the family of God. Hence, the early church had this really weird practice of doing what I just said, brother and sister. And I just think there's some people here, you need to square up with the, the fact that family ties are actually trumped by your faith. After all, after all, our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be our brothers and sisters, not just for a few vapor-like years on earth, but for the forever ages to come. And getting this right actually helps us to love our physical family better. I've put it this way many times, and I think it makes great sense. If a man says, I love my wife more than anything else, he will not love her nearly as much if he loves the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else. You think about that. You think about that. Now, all of that, that our faith trumps family ties, informs how we actually love our family. I think that's why, then, the first way Judah, here we're arriving at the first point. We're, we're getting there. Just a, few, a bunch of sides, okay? There's so much in this text. He do, it does not say Jude, brother of James and servant of Jesus Christ. What does it say? It says the first way he identifies himself is not even as the brother of James, right? Chronologically right here. Who, who's the, what's the first way he identifies himself? He identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Why? Because his faith matters more than anything. Jesus is Lord of his life. Now, when you think of servant, what do you think of? When you think of the word servant, what do you think of? Submission. Like, what are some positions you would think of? You know, I might think of a waiter or a waitress, or if I go back to Bible times, I might think of, you know, foot washing, right? John 13. Um, I'll let you know we've been watching Downton Abbey. Uh, so I might think of the valets. Hey, who's watched that? It's pretty good, actually, I think. Never thought I'd like it. Um, valets, maids, what are the other positions they have? Footmen, first footmen and second footmen and all the rest. You, you kind of think of that. And those positions definitely would entail service and sacrifice and all the rest. But did you know that the word translated, if you have an ESV in, in a lot of translations, not all, translated servant is actually a much stronger word than that? You might have, even in the copy of the Bible on your lap, a little number, a footnote, Jude, a servant. Mine has a little one. And when I 
take the, when I look at the bottom of my Bible, it says, for the contextual rendering of the word doulos, see the preface. So, you know, for the first time I ever did this this week, I, I did that. And I went to the translator's preface for the EFCA, for the EFCA, for what? ESV, there we go. Wow. So easily derailed, so easily derailed. So I went to the preface there. And I discovered that they actually say a more optimal way to translate the word doulos, here rendered as servant, is as slave. And what they say is, the reason they don't, however, is because of its associations with the brutal and inhuman institution of slavery, particularly 19th century American style. Now, I don't have time to go through the difference between biblical slavery and some of those institutions of slavery, 19th century America, still going on in different parts of the world, other than to say there are some significant differences. Now, some people totally underplay the differences. Some, some people, frankly, overplay the differences. But putting all that aside, doing that, I think, dulls the very point Jude's trying to make. Are you with me? We're not just servants. We're slaves. We're slaves to Christ. When you came to Jesus Christ, if you've truly come to Jesus Christ, you are a slave of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. He is our master, or as I'm putting it here, he's our Lord. A servant might be able to clock out. A slave can't. A servant might pick and choose or just find another place to be a valet at. A slave can't do that. There's no compartments, there's no pick and choose, there's no cut and paste, but everything, all the time, belongs to the will of the one that you are a slave to. In our case, a slave of Christ. By the way, every person who ever existed is a slave to something or someone. Most generally, you're a slave to sin outside of Christ. You're you're a slave to self. And that's why I love what our kids are learning upstairs. Last week, question number 17, New City Catechism, it was this. What is idolatry? Y'all remember the answer? Idolatry is trusting in the created thing rather than the creator. That's who we're slave to, whatever we're trusted in, right? So every human is a slave to something or someone. And here's the great, beautiful, gracious, paradoxical thing of becoming a slave to Christ. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So now you are freed as a slave of Christ to live as God intended under his good and gracious authority for his glory and for our good. And I would add, as even as I look at my own life as a Christian, and maybe look at your life as a Christian as I ask this question, I would say a great number of the problems we encounter It's because we are not seeking to walk under the lordship of Christ according to the word of God as slaves of Christ. What do you think? What do you think? Maybe? Maybe? Anyway, a slave belongs to his or her master with all of his or her life for all of his or her life. And I was reminded of that by the principal of Bloomfield Christian Academy. Uh, I'm preaching a a chapel there in, uh, in the in this new school year. So he had a number of us come in who are going to preach a chapel series. And he, we were just talking back and forth. And he recounted, I think it was the summer, visiting ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and going to some of these ancient biblical cities like Corinth. 
and seeing some 2,000 years later these walls still existing, these roads still existing. And this is what he recounted. He said, I was thinking as I was looking at these ancient walls and streets that this glory of human civilization was built on the backs of people who are called slaves. Doulos, there's the word. I realized that many of these men and women were born into slavery and had no hope of ever escaping. Then, he says, the New Testament concept of slave came into my mind to reinforce the idea that when Jesus Christ calls us to serve him, listen, it is a permanent, non-negotiable, totalitarian claim on our life. And he adds this, one in which we thankfully are never released from. He was making the point that when we come to Christ, we become slaves to Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, for you are not your, for you were bought. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6 right there, 19 and 20. How beautiful that is. The slave master himself frees us from the slave market of sin by shedding his own blood for us. And when he sheds his blood for us and we come to him, we are no longer our own. So here, here, I'll just end this first point. Another two will be quicker. Because Jesus Christ is our, and we are slaves of him, then we have no other recourse but to obey the commands of Scripture. And specifically, the command of the book of Jude to, to do what? To contend for the faith. Everyone here is to be a contender for the faith. If you call Jesus Lord, then you are to contend for the faith. It's non-negotiable. It's black and white. It's just a matter, am I going to disobey or am I going to obey? Number one, we are all to contend for the faith because Jesus is our Lord and we are his slaves. Number two, we are to contend for the faith because you, my Christian brother and sister, are unfathomably loved. Anybody know what a fathom is? Not a word we use in everyday life, but in, uh, before they came up with radar and all that, a fathom would be um, a, um, a distance or measure on a rope that had a weight at the end of it that they would hang out from ships and other boats to, to measure how deep uh, that water was. And they would say 15, 20, 27 fathoms. I'm not exactly sure how many feet a fathom is. Some places were so deep, they, they didn't have a rope long enough, they didn't, it was unfathomable depths. And what I want to tell you is there are unfathomable depths of God's love for you. In other words, you are, we're not going to understand it. It's going to take the endless ages to come to get our arms around just how big God's love is for us. But let's just try and, and maybe put the rope a little bit in the water together right now. You are unfathomably loved, first of all, and that he says to those who are called. Now, that is not referring to the general call of all humanity to come to Christ. Because if that was the only call there was, it would kind of be like when Pastor Nick gets up here and he issues a general call for kids' worker volunteers, and out of everyone here who hears it, well, maybe you get one, two, or three, or four, Right? It's real quiet, though, with that pointed illustration, okay, admittedly, okay. This is a call that accomplishes 
what it calls for to each and every one he specifically calls. This is a call that speaks life into the deadness of our souls so that we run to the cross. This is a call that's described in the Old Testament as a divine heart transplant. God taking away our heart of stone and the divine heart transplant surgeon of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, giving us a heart of flesh. This is connected and bound up with the doctrines of divine predestination and divine election. And it is all over Scripture. You go to Romans chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, to all those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 28, for those whom he did predestine, he also called. It is all over the pages of your Bible. It is everywhere. And by the way, and this is where the love part comes in, this is no sterile decision. It was love for you that drove that. The Israelites, they were called to be God's people. And God tells them in Deuteronomy 7, he says, now don't, don't get it twisted. Don't think that I called you to be my people because you were more than any other people. You were actually less. He says, I chose you, here's the answer, because I loved you. Boom, period, full stop, because I loved you. And that's exactly what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. So I just want to say, instead of, instead of chafing against divine election, instead of chasing against predestination, instead of what ifing it and all of that, it's a clearly revealed truth of Scripture. Why not just receive it? And why not just be ravished by the love of God that set his affection on you before you were a glimmer in your great, 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 keep on going back, granddaddy's eye, and said to you, mine, because I love you. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And using a little Spurgeon-esque humor, he says, and I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And then this, and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Do you know how unfathomably loved you are? If you're in Christ, it's because God chose you from the foundation of the world and called you in time to himself. And by the way, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in Detroit who will be likewise summoned to the throne of grace as you and I faithfully declare the gospel. In fact, that's what gives us the encouragement to declare the gospel because we're fishing in a stocked pond. There are people who will come. So you're, you're, you're called. Second of all, you are beloved. He says to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. Now, not to be technical or flout some knowledge I really don't have, I do want to give you a little bit of the grammar here because it, it, it brings out the richness of what's being communicated. This is what Greek grammarians would call a perfect tense, passive mood participle beloved. Now, that doesn't mean anything. I get it. 
But the passive part means this. God is the one who took action. We didn't take action. He did the loving, right? He loved us before we could do anything. He's the actor. He's the active one. And the perfect tense means this is something that happened in the past and it has never-ending consequences. It's a durable love. God says, I, I chose to love you in the past because I love you, and that love will never, ever stop. And the word love itself, you've heard this before. We talked about it in Sunday school. Leo did. It's the word agape, sacrificial love, the love of the cross, the blood of the cross. No wonder Jesus said, if you want to see what real love looks like, John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus calls us. Romans 5 eight. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, brother, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now listen, there are many ways to feel God's love. I'm sure we could all list ways that we feel God's love doing the things that we like to do, the interests that God has given us. There's a common grace that we feel God's love. But there is the place we ought to feel God's love. And the place is at the foot of the cross. And I know that when Mike Hanafy is not feeling the love of God at the foot of the cross, either reading the word of God, worshiping with the people of God, or something like that, I know that there's something wrong with my heart. And I need to get along with the Lord and do what Spurgeon himself said, I need to freshly search the mystery of the words, a mystery of his wounds, and abide hard in the shadow of the cross. Because you are beloved. The ultimate reminder of how deeply loved you are is what God did in love for you. So you're unfathomably loved in the, in the form of being called beloved and finally kept right here. Kept for Jesus Christ. Listen, how many of you had a job where you got 90 days to show whether or not they're going to retain you. Anybody had a job like that? Or maybe you play for the symphony and you got one or two years to make sure that you can cut, cut the mustard or, you know, before you get offered tenure. Listen, God doesn't put us on probation when he saves us. He doesn't, you know, call us and then look at our lives and say, oh boy, what was I thinking, self? He doesn't do that. God doesn't set his special love on us and then revoke his special love. We're capped. We're capped. We're capped. Yes. And, and people translate, they wrestle with how, is it, am I capped for Jesus? Some translations put it that way. I think the ESV does. Or am I capped by Jesus? Now, what do you think the answer is? Boom. It's both. We are kept by Jesus. Did not Jesus said that no one can pluck you out of my out of my hand. No one can pluck you out of his hand. Does it not say in Hebrews chapter 7, man, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. If you had supersonic ears, you hear Jesus interceding for you right now, beloved. You can be confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. 
the way this doxology reads as Emma read it, he is able to present us faultless before the throne of his glory, not with shame, but with great joy. So you are kept by Jesus Christ. But this, this is mind-blowing. You're kept for Jesus Christ. He wants you to be with him. That's crazy, isn't it? Our raggedy old selves and ourselves. He wants his people to be with him. This is what he prayed in that high priestly prayer, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may enjoy my glory. That's God's heart for you. Now, I know somebody here might be saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What about the person who once confessed Jesus, who once seemed to walk with Jesus, and now doesn't, right? You ever wonder about that? Of course, we all wrestle with that. We know people like that. And I would just say, I don't know their heart, neither do you. It very well might be that they actually belong to the Lord. And if they do, they will be chastened out of the hand of a loving father. They will be disciplined and they'll be brought back into the fold. Or it may be 1 John 2, 19. They went out from among us because they were never really of us. They went down to the souvenir shop and got a jersey, but they were never actually on the team. So what are we to do with such people? We're to pray for them. We're to share the gospel with them, right? We're to remind them of what they once confessed. But I tell you this, Jesus said this, of all that you have given me, John 18 and 9, I have lost, I have lost none of them. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So listen, because we are unfathomably loved, we're called, we're beloved, we're kept, we must contend for the faith. That's, that's the bigger point right here. Isn't that the response of gratitude? Isn't that the response of thankfulness? Isn't that the response of loyalty? People, and I say this clearly, especially carnal, cowardly, and worldly confessing Christians will not like your contending. They won't. They'll even mischaracterize it, perhaps. But because we're so loved by God, we're so unfathomably loved, and we want others to know that love, we obey the command to commend. Now, I'm going to close quickly with this third point. First of, first of all, we, we contend for the faith because of who we are, slaves to Christ. We contend for the faith because of what God has done for us in Christ. We are unfathomably loved unfathomably loved, <laughs> called, beloved, kept. And third of all, we contend for the faith because as we contend, there's far more to experience of God. Who wants to experience more of God? He says, may mercy, verse two, peace and love be multiplied to you. Multiplied, not just increased, not just doubled, right? What's the word? Multiplied. More mercy, more peace, more love. Now, who does not want to experience more of God's mercy, love, and peace exponentially? Anybody here say, you know what? I've got enough of God's mercy in my life. That's enough, thank you. Pass it on to somebody else. 
We all want to experience more of God's mercy in the midst of our struggles and doubts and sins and fears and, and all that. We, we, we want more mercy. Who here says, nope, I've got enough of God's peace in this old heart? No. Who wants to have objective peace in an anxiety-riddled society based on the objective peace, the subjective peace based on the objective peace of Christ at the cross? Who doesn't want to experience more of God's love? Who doesn't want to just be able to put their finger on a verse that says God loves me, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, want to feel that love in our heart, a.k.a. Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit is given to us. Paul is praying that his readers would experience more of these things, intensified mercy, multiplied peace, exponentially increased love. He's praying that for them. But the idea, I think, is this in context, that we put feet to that prayer as we, as slaves of Christ, unfathomably loved by God, contend for the faith. That in that place of contending for the faith, we meet the, this, this holy tree out of God. We experience it in new ways that you would not meet because you're not contending for the faith or you're disobedient. A baby has no idea how much his and her parents love him as that little cute blob of Imago Day fills his or her britches, pukes up stuff all over the place, and steals hours of precious sleep. That baby has no idea, right? How much, Levi, how much does mom and dad love you? Just let me hold on to that bottle. That's all I want to do, Pastor Mike. I have no idea. No idea. Pretty much oblivious to this. Certainly, we would all agree to the depth and intensity, right, of that parent's love. But as that child grows, they, they begin to sense, right, their parent's love. They begin to feel their parent's love hear their parents' love, experience their parents' love, and even when they grow into those adolescent years, when there's ups and downs and all that, they, they, they experience more of their parents' love. And when you get to be an adult, you look back and you say, wow, my parents really loved me. I had no idea when I was doing my thing. And if, if God blesses you to grow your family, when you, when, when you see... There's this spark of love that erupts in your belly when that child joins your family, right? Just instantly. You're like, whoa, my parents really love me. And the point here I'm trying to make through this baby illustration is that we, as we grow from infancy to mature adulthood in defending or contending for the faith, we'll experience, taste, be immersed by more of that love and peace and joy God has always had for us. I end with, with Spurgeon here, the prince of preachers. He's also called the prince of pain. Do you know how much suffering this guy went through? I mean, read it. I think, Stephen, you're reading his biography that I gave you, two, two volume. This guy went through a bunch of stuff, slander and scorn. There was these miscreants who cried, fire, fire, before 12,000 packed into Surrey Hall, causing a stampede that killed seven and caused 28 to be seriously injured. He was plagued with guilt for that. He had terrible bouts, many people don't know this, with, with, with pretty intense depression, like some here. 
He had seasons of intense gout, very painful. And then he ultimately went through this thing called the downgrade controversy in which many he had walked with and even trained were compromising their faith and for which he was bitterly criticized as an alarmist and a fundamentalist for warning people about compromising the faith in the way that they were. He would say stuff like this, quote, a new religion has been initiated which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. And that, by the way, led, ultimately speaking, or humanly speaking, to his early death. But I was thinking about that, and I'd come across this quote, and I googled Jude 2, just to see if Mr. Spurgeon had preached that text. He did a message on Jude 2, 1880-something, and he called it holy arithmetic. Again, the multiplied thing, right? Holy arithmetic. And he said, here we have three choice gems, mercy, peace, and love, which seem to sparkle as we gaze upon them. And happy is the man who can say, they are mine. For a while indeed, we have to wear a crown of thorns as our master did. But even this shall be a glory to us. What is it that you have on your brow right now? It is as if God would weave a wreath foreheads out of his mercy and intertwine it with the lily of peace and adorn it with the rose of love. May this trio of blessings be given to each one of us and be multiplied, and I would add, as we contend for the faith. So this is the call as the music team comes. We're going to dive into this book, and this book is going to lay on us the need to contend for the faith. And we do so for three reasons. Let's, let's rehearse this as we're coming up. We contend for the faith, first of all, because Jesus is, because Jesus is Lord. We're, we're slaves to Christ. We contend for the faith, number two, because we are unfathomably loved. And we contend for the faith because there is more to love and peace and mercy.